Hey everyone, and welcome to the Darkcast. This is DCI number 87, and I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. In this episode, Brian and I talk to Danielle Goodo and Jason Hill of Choice of Games about their latest text adventure, Choice of the Petal Throne, which is based in a fantasy world created by M.A.R. Barker uh, called Tecamel. For more information about the game, check out our website at darkstation.com. You can find info in the show notes to this episode. You can subscribe to us on Twitter at darkstation underscore com. Subscribe to us on iTunes and email us at podcast at darkstation.com. Now, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. And on with the show. so much for joining us on the Darkcast tonight. How are you doing? And who are we talking to? Uh, I'm Danielle Goodo. I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little bit nervous. Uh, I'm the writer for Choice of the Pedal Throne. Fantastic. And I'm Jason Hill. I'm one of the uh, partners uh, at Choice of Games. My, uh, uh, my business card says that I'm the chief operating officer uh, but we know all know how accurate business cards are these days. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. One of many hats. Right. And, one of yeah. many hats. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and also COO just fa- sounds fancy. So, I mean. Doesn't it though? Yeah, absolutely. We just, the, the my day job, we just recently got a COO. Um, and we had a guy that was doing that job, but now we have somebody that has that title and so I've had all these people congratulating us on like getting this you know new fancy <laughs> position, and it's like, well, it. I mean, we just kind of created the title. It's not actually, but yeah, okay, sure, yeah, good on us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's random things like that. Anyway, anyway, uh, but yeah, so that that is awesome. That is uh, good that we've got two kind of very different sides of uh, the game making machine here. Um, and Danielle, don't be nervous. We're we're very nice here. Everybody always tells us we're very nice, aren't we, Brian? I, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, never mind. You will enjoy it while they chew on you. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Much I'm like the scenery to, to great actors. <laughs> yes, we munch on things. I, I'm less worried about the two of you than my own foot and mouth disease. Oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> You've had 124,000 words of practice. You're good. You're, you're fine. <laughs> Well, uh, before we get into to talking about uh, Choice of the Petal Throne, uh, why don't you guys talk about uh, what exactly you do kind of in your, your day-to-day uh, jobs, specifically with uh, the game? Uh, as I understand it, Danielle, you're not uh, a game maker by trade? Uh, that's correct. I'm, I guess I'm a freelance writer in this case. That sounds a, a bit more elite very than I would even use, oh, like but yeah. sure, I'll go with that. Freelance writer. Yeah. It's far more real. I got you. Absolutely. <laughs> Sounds very professional, just like COO. It's perfect. Yep. Uh, Jason, do you want me to go first? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, what do I do day to day? So I was basically involved in writing the project, which in that capacity, I did a lot of research on the setting 
and mm-hmm. storyboarding out and then just a ridiculous amount of revision and writer's block mm. and perseverance and uh, a lot of sitting down in front of my computer and putting words onto a screen. My life outside of writing the game is more interesting than my life inside of writing the game, which really does consist of typing. <laughs> well, what is your life outside of writing the game? Uh, I work at a genetics lab and... I do a lot of reading and a lot of, like, historical baking, which is a cool hobby, at least in my mind, passes for cool. You say historical baking? Yes. I like finding, like, really old recipes and trying to bake them. I I think that falls into the whole fantasy thing, right? Do Do you try to bake them as they did in days past? Uh, yes, but I live in an apartment, so, you know, as close <laughs> as I can get without, you know, building my own brick oven. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. so yeah, the instructions are, you know, uh, cook on a giant open charcoal flame. That's that's not really a doable thing, I would imagine. Yeah, although with old stuff, it's actually the problems in the other direction, which is it'll just say sort of cook, and then you have to <laughs> try uh, to infer contextually what they meant by that. Generally, a cake cooks like this, so... (laughs) And then I'm a big gamer. I like uh, playing tabletop games uh, and computer RPGs, and uh, I write LARPs, which was sort of my writing experience before this. Oh, okay. Your your gateway drug into writing video games? Yes, my gateway drug is writing LARPs with my husband. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, what about you, Jason? Uh, I do a lot of the uh, day-to-day management of Choice of Games, uh, which is, as you may or may not know, a publishing house for uh, independent authors who want to make interactive fiction. So my day-to-day job, besides managing the money of the company, is to edit people like Danielle, although not Danielle. She was not one of my... um, one of my projects. Uh, I have about 30 projects, for example, that where people like Danielle who are making games and then I read their writing and give them feedback on it and try to make sure, try to teach them uh, our programming language choice script, try to teach them our theory of game design for choice script games and then help them in the publishing process. Nice. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about kind of what that design philosophy is? Um, I mean, that has to do with the difference between, like, how choice script games, what are, what's our strong suits uh, versus what do some of our competitors do with interactive fiction? You know, because we don't use a parser. We use uh, multiple choice uh, inputs. Um, Our games are about making high-level decisions and where decisions have consequences. It's not about grind. You know, there's never or there's almost never any randomness in our games. There's no combat sequences where it's like, oh, do you hit the your opponent or not? It's how do you overcome your opponent? Do you overcome them by, you know, going head-to-head with them? Do you sneak around behind them or do you talk them down? And mm-hmm. so those sorts of making decisions and then having your decisions be judged based upon your prior decisions, uh, that's the resolution system for the game, not... Uh, grind or randomness or anything along those lines. 
Okay. Very cool. That, yeah. I mean, sorry, just very quickly, and that's yeah, a very yeah. different. That's very different, for example, from a tabletop RPG because you know in tabletop RPGs, right, you often have a an obstacle that you have to overcome, and that's going to depend heavily on rolling the dice or totally I, like a whole cup mm, full of dice, right? Or it's going to be all different kinds. I've right. been there. Or an old fashioned. Do you play Earth Dawn? Right. No, but I do. My my uh, we we made a collection in our uh, in our D and D group of old of uh, of many different dice. In fact, I had one that I had broken with a hammer um, to teach the other dice a lesson because it was not um, doing what it was supposed to. But do you have so, a D thirty four? That's my question. A thirty four? No, I've no no. That sounds fantastic. What is that? I I have a D thirty four. I could take a photograph of it and, and text it to you. I, I, to I, no, hold on. I gotta look this up now. What, we, I'm gonna fact check this. In uh, <laughs> as all great podcasters do, please continue yes. to talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I just want to add in like what you were saying, Jason, about the differences between a choice of game and like a tabletop game. I find partly interesting because I think a lot of the movement in tabletop games nowadays is sort of a lot of it is towards sort of a story model or maybe it's branching out where you have some games that are very puzzly and game boardy and sort of <laughs> traditional miniature and then you have a lot of new games that are very rules light very high level decisions like let's not spend an hour fetishistically dicing out of combat let's you know keep things moving um I don't know. As my friends get older and have less and less time to game, I feel like they gravitate towards those. Yes, and I would say that that's a good way of describing what choice of games is is trying to trying to do, which is to make good stories, um, as opposed to having puzzles for the player to solve or or exactly obstacles to overcome. They're not obstacles in the same way that you might find in other games. So. Very cool. Now, um, how did, uh, Danielle, you mentioned writing LARPs, uh, but how did you actually kind of get into to writing this particular game and into writing Choice of the Petal Throne? Yeah, I know Jason and Dan and Adam, who are sort of the, I think I'm right in saying sort of the core Choice of Games group. <laughs> and around when the game was getting started i sorry not the game when the company was getting started a few years ago i had a like old paper multiple choice adventure set in tecamel that i became obsessed with the idea that they should really digitize this because it did have all these you know roll on the limb dismemberment table and go shopping and, you know, all this stuff that made it really hard to use on paper, but would Mm. be great on a computer. Mm -hmm. And when I went and talked to the Tecamel Foundation, who are the uh, holders of sort of that IP, uh, they very reasonably were sort of like, wait, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) We never having talked to them again. And we had a, a long and really great conversation And the upshot of it was that everyone decided it would be better to make sort of a more original work that was a little smaller in scope, a little more friendly to people who weren't familiar with the setting. And sort of as Jason was mentioning, more in line with choice of games, uh, normal design features, right, which this paper book written in the 70s would be less, much less so. Hmm. Gotcha. So what what kind of drew you to uh, Tecamel as a as your kind of world to, to build your story in? Uh, 
I'm a really big fan of any game setting where they put out 200 page books that just talk about roof tiles and (laughs) and i don't know if you um ever played fading suns is a great classic one where they just put out like here's a book on a planet and what kind of food people eat there i really like that sort of thing and so uh my husband had a huge tecamo collection and we played in it a few times as a tabletop and i started absorbing everything reading everything the other thing i really liked about it and one of the reasons i thought it'd be a good fit for choice of games is choice of games uh, really seems to try to be a very modern, inclusive company in mm-hmm. terms of presenting, you know, a, a wide array of diversity in the subjects of their games. And one of the things that's great about Tecamel or Empire of the Petal Throne, as it's also known, is that it's written to be sort of a merger of South American and Southeast Indian cultures. And so it's very different from sort of your generic stock fantasy world if that makes sense and that makes it very exciting because if you game a lot you often find yourself gaming in slight variations of the exact same world and it's neat to see something come along that's both detailed and completely original Mm -hmm. yeah basically everything is on some kind of continuum between like greek mythology and norse mythology exactly (laughs) yeah or like both side by side right where you have like odin and zeus kicking back with some beers. You know what? That actually sounds really good, too. That I want to see an Odin I've Zeus played that game. It did not end well. Uh. <laughs> that's, that's kind of Planescape. If you play in Planescape, there's this real sense that the gods are sort of just blokes. Maybe <laughs> not as deserving of worship as they'd like us to be. Yep. <laughs> us to think. Nice. Uh, did, did you fact check that, uh, Brian? I did. It is insane. Um, it is it is basically uh, two like cylindrical pyramids on top of each other, and all the numbers are in the center, and it rolls that way. Um, I've never seen this before in my life. Uh, I will I go to bed tonight and have nightmares about it now. Well, so you know, I think that. when I was in high school, my parents were trying to connect with me, and my mom said, "Oh, do you have a D thirty four one day?" And I was like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so she got me a D34. And have that's you fantastic. ever used it? Uh, you know, I think there was a system that I was developing where I just randomly threw in the use of the D34 so that I could say that it had a purpose, but otherwise, no. <laughs> it's a good savings throw die, I imagine. That's right. That's excellent. That's but yes, no. It is a very real, very scary thing. Thank you. And very cumbersome. Actually, yeah, uh, it, you know what? It does not look like it is easy to use. No, it is not. It, and much like the D hundred, it just kind of keeps rolling. So yeah, because that's kind of like a ball. <laughs> right. Yep. I'm gonna be googling this as soon as this. It, yeah, no, they're here. As soon as it's over, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I'm like, I, wait a minute, I have to, I have to know about this. this just make insane. make sure you type in thirty four sided dice and not D thirty four. Because the internet interprets D anything as something completely different. <laughs> sure, sure. I, Just I can. I, ends I, up to anybody listening. I did write that, but I appended it with uh, die at yeah, the end of good, it. Yeah, so. good, good plan. So, so no problems there. Um, well, Jason, what what made um, Tecumel seem like a, a good story for uh, yeah the kind of games that you guys publish? Uh, so that was. 
the decision to for that to happen probably happened actually uh, so early in the company that was before I was there. Um, the company, like uh, Danielle, you started this in 2010, if I remember correctly. 2011, really? But yes, a long time ago in the mists of time. Yeah. Uh, I officially became part of the company in sometime in 2011 as well. And I think Danielle had already started on the project by then. Uh, but at much as she said, it was uh, in large part the fact that it had such a unique setting mm -hmm. and represented the values of choice of games. Uh, and so it was very convenient that she wanted to make a, a game set in that world. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, you mentioned that you've been working on this for what almost five years now. That's that's a long time to be working on a game. How how has the progression of this kind of gone? Yeah, I I actually wrote a, a blog post about this on the Choice of Games website. Um, this game, the story of this game, is sort of the story of me getting in over my head and having a lot of stuff happen in my life, and then sort of pulling things together at the last minute. So uh, in 2011, I, I or in, in the early 2011, I came up with the idea to write the game. I wrote an outline, and then I moved across country for my husband to go to school and stopped working on it. And then I started working on it again, and actually it won third place in Intro Comp, which is like a little interactive fiction contest for just the beginnings of games. Hmm. And then... Uh, I went through a period in my life where I was very stressed out and very depressed and sort of just didn't work on it for a whole year. And that pattern continued um, off and on. So I moved back to California in late 2012. And basically for 2012 and 2013, uh, this game was sort of a beast I was wrestling with that I really thought was going to beat me. It, um, I just there was a lot of stuff going on in my life and I'm uh, prone to depression and this became sort of a symbol of everything I couldn't accomplish and then in 2014 I uh, had begun getting help with my depression I'd begun getting things together and I got some really great advice from multiple sources on how to make progress and so I would say 80% of the game was written sort of in 2014. So it's sort of a, a project that languished and seemed impossible. And then everything came together and I was able to just sit down and work on it every night for a year. And then it got finished right before Christmas. I got my advance check and went on a trip to Hawaii to celebrate and then came back. And uh, then we had a few months of copy editing and polishing and everything. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, if you don't mind, can can you talk a little bit about what that advice that was so good that kind of you know yeah. helped get the game get done? Uh, I'm very happy to talk about that. So uh, the first thing was I think it's really hard to to have an extra project in your life um, and you know maintain your normal job and everything when you're depressed and it's such a workload. And so a big part of the advice was my you know husband convincing me to really take my depression seriously and deal with it as opposed to just sort of accepting it as this ever-present fact of my life. Hmm. Um, but more specific to the game, I had gotten some advice to work on projects. Um, 
in what's it's sometimes called the five minute method although the version i was told is sort of a five 20 minute method so you the idea is you work on something and you just say i'm going to work on it for a very short amount of time that seems manageable to you and then you do that and then you stop when you finish that time so i would work on the game for like 20 minutes and i and then stop and i did this for a few weeks and the good thing about this method is that sometimes when you have projects and you have writer's block or you're not making progress on them, it can become very painful to work on them, right? They become a symbol of things you've done wrong. You sort of sit down and you're, you're already failing before you start. And so building up some successful short encounters um, builds positive momentum. And then once you have that positive momentum, you can increase the length you're working on it. And basically I got to a point where I could pretty regularly come home from work, sit down and spend my weeknight working on it, you know, most of the evening. And that's how I sort of managed to get a rhythm and have positive associations. Mm -hmm. The, the third thing was I had actually been reading an essay by a writer I liked, and it wasn't exactly advice, but it, when I was reading the essay, I became aware that I had sort of set up in my mind um, a lot of unrealistic expectations for what a first draft would look like, and uh, that I needed to stop worrying about that and just make progress on the game, make progress on writing what I wanted to write, and then go back and, you know, feel comfortable, like, polishing it and taking it to beta and getting user feedback and incorporating that. Um, whereas sometimes I think it's easy to let the sort of, as people say, the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? You sit down and you type it and you're like, oh, this this doesn't seem like something, you know, a famous writer would write. I don't like the wording in there, so I'm going to delete it and rewrite that same sentence over and over, which doesn't really get mm. you anywhere. Um so I think sometimes it's the what really helped for me was sort of accept what I was writing and especially accept it as a structure and a framework that then could be built upon when I went back to it after I'd had some time. You know, Danielle, what's funny, uh, about 10 years ago I was writing a novel and I feel as though I had a very similar um, wrestling with the with the words and the page and, and trying to write on a computer because you know a blank computer page is so freaking uh, intimidating. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I ended up doing was I I had a moleskin and I am blessed with terrible handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> and what the, what that means is that when I would write. Uh, and in particular, like I would write on the subway to work in the morning and on the way home or, or just sitting anywhere. When I would write something, it would almost instantly vanish. You know, it didn't give me the opportunity to delete it because my handwriting is so difficult to read that I would write something and I couldn't read it at the moment. And so I couldn't get I couldn't psych myself out with how bad it was. And so <laughs> I would end up just writing and writing and writing and not be uh, 
you know, put off by how bad it was. And then, and after a while, I had a moleskin and then another moleskin finished. And then I could go back and with, with some effort, I could actually sit down and read what I had written. And then I would transcribe it into a computer. And after a while, I'd, I would, you know, there were things in there that were worth preserving, you know, that were useful, that were good. Uh, but if I had, you know, deleted them, if I had erased them as I was writing, I wouldn't have had any of that. And so by that, by the, as I said, having such terrible handwriting, I could just write and not be bothered by, uh, the lack of quality in my prose. That's really cool. I, I, I totally think you're right about the computer screens. It's so easy to delete something. It's so easy to just sort of stare at a, uh, blinking cursor. So... Uh, I don't know. If anyone's listening to this and trying to write something, I I think that's a great tip to try to write it out by hand, but also to, you know, try to break it into manageable parts and to have, like, I don't know, not be so hard on yourself. I think it's so easy when you're trying to, uh, God, I sound like I'm like some kindergartner giving teacher giving everyone a trophy, but it's <laughs> really easy when you're trying to do something that for you is ambitious to just immediately set yourself up for failure and uh, I don't know that's not particularly useful it doesn't get you anywhere it's yeah. uh, it's like the whole uh, the creative process is uh, it, it, it there's a there's a uh, point at the beginning where you're so excited with the very idea that you know you're, you're almost kind of leaping to get something onto the page and then when you're presented with the page you're like well hold on a second what what am I doing with this <laughs> And then that, yeah. that becomes the point of intimidation and kind of the, the, the point where everything stops. So, I mean, even when writing something um, that kind of should be as simple as a review because it's, it's more of an opinion, um, that, that, that too, that just staring kind of at the blank page, whether it's, it's handwriting it or, or writing it on the screen in front of you, it is, it, it's absolutely like, it's like a solid wall. And then yeah. you have to cover it with stuff and you're like, well, I can't cover all of this with with words and and if i did cover it with words my words aren't any good why am i doing this i'm just going to turn this off and you know like go watch tv that's much easier and so i, I absolutely get where both of you are coming from with that i'm gonna go totally watch daredevil you yeah should. you should absolutely you should i already did that but the important part was i did my creative work first yep and then binge watched daredevil that's right absolutely. It, it make that the reward <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So when you, uh, when we're talking about um, just for for people who may not be um, um, in on it yet, um, when we're talking about choice of games, when we're talking about interactive fiction, this is literally a a, 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 a almost like a, an interactive book, so to speak, in which we're dealing with a, a lot of words on the screen itself. You know, that's actually part of the, the you know the difficulty. Uh, and a, a the short version of a novel, the, the given the guideline is that it has to be fifty thousand words. And a choice of game, the author is not only writing at least 50,000 words so that it can be the length of a novel, but they also have to think, they have to program it themselves, and they have to have it be a good game in addition to being a good story. And so there's a lot of juggling, there's a lot of negotiation, there's a lot of 
uh, a whole lot of sleepless nights uh, that go into each of these games. And so it's, it's, it's a very all-encompassing sort of thing that people uh, get involved with. And, and it's interesting because it's, it is very much a solo endeavor. And watching people go through it, you know, when you're done, it's, it's fantastic. But, you know, the, especially the first time you go through it, it can be a little rough. I think what can be interesting about it is normally, you know, if you write a story, you sort of have a plot that's interesting to you. And every time you get to a choice in an interactive novel, you have to sort of stop and think, what are the, you know, range of things that someone who's not me, who's doing this, might want to do? And then to uh, you, and then you have to figure out what would happen during those those plots. So it can be difficult sometimes to you just you know both step out of yourself and think, well, what would people want to do? And then to try to develop parallel plots that at some point come back together. So with maybe you know a stat change or a world change that carries forward into the narrative, so that you aren't building a giant tree. I actually think LARP writing really helped with that because a lot of writing LARPs is you have sort of a core scenario and then you're writing 20 different people's perceptions of that, their take on that, what they want to do with that. And then when you're running the LARP, uh, you sit there and you watch every run, run with it, and you see how 20 different people all approach the same problem in vastly different ways. So I thought about that a lot as I was working on my game. Like, oh, you know, what are these other people who LARP differently than me? What would they do in this situation? Hmm. Yeah, it's, that's, it, that's a real interesting distinction because having played um, kind of both kinds of things where, you know, you have, or rather having run like a, <laughs> a traditional like D&D game where there's a, a central plot and the characters are basically just following that, um, to, to then having dealt, dealt with... Um, kind of role players in their own space as it were with like a LARP session where yeah you have kind of an overall plot but as you said everybody kind of handles things differently and I always had a lot of respect for um, storytellers that were able to deal with that because I I know at least in my group of friends um, the kind of crap they would come up with was just astounding yes (laughs) It, it, it revolves a lot of and I think this is kind of true with the choice of game too you like make something and you let it go and then you're like, oh, that's what you did with it. Wow. I mean, which is true with these games, too, because even though you've plotted out every, you know, I've written every step, but I, people will take completely non-intuitive paths through it, right? There's, you know, they'll run tests of the computer playing <laughs> the game, and you have to run 100,000 tests, and sometimes, you know, only eight of those will get to a given option. And so there's a lot of different ways for people to play, which I mm-hmm. think is very interesting. Mm-hmm. How do you approach this from kind of like a story point? Cause especially, and I'm real interested in the way that the, that those branching paths have to work because you, you, you know, you do kind of have your central arc that you need to, you got to kind of keep through in order just to keep kind of the story going. Did you like stop at every point and say, okay, I need to have this here. Or was it kind of more of a, almost like a muddy tree as it were where you know you have your arc you've written that out and then you go okay we should have like a point here a point here a point here here's kind of where this could go yeah i i think jason could talk a little bit about sort of the the standard um 
choice of games game structure and then I might elaborate on that with my game but I know they do sort of have a philosophy of game design uh, the best the best image that I can say is that it's a matter of a, a sequence of bushes and what I mean by bushes is that it ever each vignette each chapter starts in the same place and then the story uh, goes up like the trunk of the branch and then it goes off into all the different little smaller parts of the, of the bush and then the bush ends and then you start at the beginning of the next bush which is again the trunk and the, the next vignette goes up it, like a bush and you make decisions and you go to the end of the, of, the, of the leaves and you start on the next bush and so in that way each vignette is its own story beat and what is preserved are changes are to variables, usually variables that describe the character. But each bush is its own, like I said, beat or uh, plot element. And then you sort of solve that particular solver or complete that element. And then you move on to the next one. And you may have changed in the process and certain things may have changed. But the, but the basic structure of those individual bushes remain the same um, no matter how you play through them. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So it's, instead of having like a – instead of looking at kind of um, the, the, the forest for the trees as it will, you're, you're kind of taking each tree individually and saying, okay, so here's, here's the first part of this. Here's the second part of this. Here's the third part of this. Yes, they all work together. But if, if these individual spots don't work, then nothing through the whole thing is going to work. Yeah? No? I don't know. That sounded <laughs> – yeah, that was that was uh, there somewhere. So, I had that structure with my game, and um, what I tried to do was that's very much in line with that. Is I tried to make each vignette in many ways is about like a relationship, hmm. um, because uh, the, one of the things that's very important to the setting of Tecamel is that it's a very socially cohesive setting. It's very different than sort of the rugged individualism that characterizes a lot of computer games and role-playing games. You're sort of enmeshed in social ties. And so each one would be out of a relationship and it would branch out and then it would come together. But the variable that would sort of be toggled and affect future events would be your relationship with the person in the scene, in addition to, you know, your stats or other variables. And then in the middle of the game, to encourage replayability, um, I have a, you know, absolutely giant scene where you get given a goal and you're basically asked which one of four ways you want to accomplish the goal, and then those all split out into their own self-contained scenes, so you would experience a totally new, uh, you know, sort of chapter if you went and accomplished that goal differently the second time. And then there's an option at the end of that where how you how you did actually bifurcates the game into two scenes that then later come together again so i i tried to branch out the central trunk of the game um a bit which i think is a little different well i'm not gonna say it's different because i i've seen other choice of games do that too um Quite a bit, and some have much more variability than mine, and some have less. 
Now, when I was little, um, there were some excellent um, oh, choose your adventure titles out there. And I remember putting my finger on a page and kind of skipping forward some. <laughs> Is that an option? <laughs> no, I actually, I think there's this interesting thing about choice of games, which is that you can't move forward and you can't move back, right? So you make a choice and if you, you know, uh, like I'll play Mass Effect all the time or like a Bioware game and I'll save my game and then I'll go into conversation with someone and I'll be like, oh, they misconstrued what I meant to say or oh, yeah, that didn't straight go up. well. Yep. And I'll reload to get sort of the ending I want. Mm -hmm. And in Choice of Goods, you can't do that. It's just, mm -hmm. it's a forward path unless, you know, you start over. And it's it's interesting because it makes you think more about what you're going to do. And I think it also leads to a more interesting story because you have these stories where someone does misconstrue what you want to say or you do fail at a thing you want to succeed at. And then you come back from that. And then, you know, when you look at a story as a whole, a story where you have ups and downs and successes and failures is a more interesting story than where you just sort of drift from victory to victory, um, which I must admit is how I sort of compulsively play most video games, trying to get that sort of perfect streak. I think that's a really interesting way of putting it, Danielle, which I have to say I hadn't actually thought of before, um, in that... You know, the games are, as she said, forward moving and they are trying to tell stories and stories where you're not always winning all the time, you know. And in fact, in, in order to sort of encourage replayability, we make, as it were, total victories kind of hard to achieve so that, you know, you might go through the game and have a several different things that you want to accomplish that your character wants to accomplish and maybe the first time through you accomplish one of them but you fail or only get half victories at the other two and so you have to kind of try and juggle your your skills and your goals and your relationships with the other people in the game so that you can eventually get some sort of uh more satisfying or more complete victory but those each but each at the same time that that single victory uh, creates its own sort of bittersweet, poignant story, uh, which is very dis different from a complete victory, if you follow me. Mm-hmm. Hey, you, you can't do that necessarily perfect run-through. It's just, you know, the individual moments that you, you do the best that you can. Yeah. And then that makes something that's yours, right? It's your story. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like if you're playing... Um, like, I used to play WoW, and, like, people would come out with these, you know, optimal talent trees for different classes where sort of, you know, this talent tree was, this configuration was 10% better than any other configuration. And it so everyone has to build. have that one. Yep. And sometimes you're just like, well, I don't want that one. I want to be 10% less effective but have something that's my own and appeals to me. And um, I think Choice of Games allows you to do that where you say like oh i'm gonna make my story and what's cool about it is that it's not the same story as everyone else who's played the game mm -hmm. yeah i um that that is the way I, i've tried to start playing games because I, I used to always do everything yeah usually the the options in video games are you know good and evil um it, it's <laughs> often not a lot of kind of in between uh, morality there. It's just you can be the good guy 
or it, it's most of the time it's not even evil. It's just you can be a dick. Like it, it video games are terrible at making you evil. And um, or there's our... like three options. There's like good Han Solo supervillain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I I actually played through Mass Effect, and when I wanted to play through it the second time, I wanted to do the evil side. And like a couple hours into it, I just felt terrible because I being evil Shepherd is not like evil Shepherd is not evil Shepherd. Evil Shepherd is just a dick. It's like just... that's. It's just annoying. <laughs> and so often, the way there are, like, evil choices in games is someone will be like, hey, come do my side quest, and you can kind of just um, tell them to fuck off. Wait, am I allowed to curse on yeah. your phone? Yeah, sure, yeah, you're absolutely. Okay. So you just tell them to go fuck off, and then you're like, oh, wait, evil me gets to play less of the game? Right. What? Yeah, this is cool. That's not fun. I'm going to become oh. the most helpful person in the world <laughs> so I can do everything. <laughs> Or or you say that you're going to do it, and then at the end they're like, oh, I don't have any money, and then you can either, you know, point a gun at their head and get paid anyway, or be like, oh, no, that's cool. Um, but I, I decided uh, later on when I, I did do my subsequent playthroughs of, of Mass Effect that it was a lot more fun to kind of make two, you know, opposite characters that were both shades of gray. So basically every choice that they made was the opposite of the other one, but it was always somewhere in the middle, and it made for, like, these very iconic, very personal characters that I have, and so anytime a game kind of lets you do that and not just either stick to, you know, it almost, you know, kind of removing the option of having that perfect run-through, so I kind of just have to deal with the choices that I've made, it has become a far more intriguing idea uh, in my head. Me, like, Five ten years ago, I would that would have driven me insane. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to deal with a non-optimal uh, character playthrough. I, I'm with you there. Ten year ago, Danielle played video games very differently from now, Danielle. So that is uh, that is that is good to hear. I always played video games this way, so no. hey. Somebody had to, because otherwise we no, would no. all still be playing it the other way. No, you have to understand, I chose the dick option to that oh. option. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, on the uh, all the Knights of the Old Republic games, I usually go through and play a second time just like with gratuitous use of Force Lightning as my only <laughs> life goal, and then I feel slightly sociopathic and bad. <laughs> But that, I'm lucky in that that's what I have my wife for, um, because she has called me on multiple occasions video game Jesus because I, I can't I can't seem to bring myself to be mean to fake people. Um, while she and 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 one of her favorite uh, MMOs was the Old Republic because they actually let you be an evil Sith that used gratuitously force lightning on anybody that you wanted at like almost oh, yeah. any point in the conversations. I loved the Old Republic. I played as an Imperial agent, and it was great because the stuff you did working for the Sith was so evil that I actually was able to have an arc where, like, my, you know, sort of compliant fascist became disgusted with the level of evil her government was asking her to do and, you know, had a redemption story. And it it was awesome. Yeah, my, my, my chiss was pretty much the same way. And then I was very honorable, and I did I did what was right for the Empire rather than what was right for the Sith. And my wife was just like, I'm going to shock you with this. Get out of my way. 
yeah, totally. The the the, fir- the very first part where they give you like the interrogation scene with the the people in the cages. Oh god. There's just there's just there's a point where you're done talking to them where one of the options is just shock them again. And she was like, "Oh, excellent." <laughs> that game was interesting though because they had such a dedication to sort of uh what you Jonathan were saying the uh, the sort of you know light side dark side or good evil dichotomy mm-hmm. that you it almost existed in a morally relativistic universe where your Sith would go in someplace and they'd be like, torture these slaves to death. And you'd be like, no, I'm just going to execute all of them. Yeah. And you'd get light side points. And it was like, <laughs> really? Oh, okay. But, you know, they, they felt by convention that they needed to sort of have the light side option and the dark side option, even though all the actions they were presenting were all evil. Yeah, this mm-hmm. is all bad stuff. <laughs> yeah, I remember there was a uh, along the the Sith warrior line. There was a a kind of what they deemed a major choice, and the light side was killing this person that you were sent to find, and the dark side was sending him to the huts. <laughs> I was like, okay, I can understand how one is more evil than the other, but let's not joke about how light side this one choice is. And and then I know we're talking about Star Wars too much, but the flip side of that was uh, I assume you can edit this out. <laughs> the uh, no, it, it's all. topical. There, there's a you know, okay. Star Wars trailer that recently I, came Tech out. It was in it's space. Hey, so that the, is true. That, that is, is true. true. <laughs> the the flip side was there was a uh, soldier option where it was like literally, do you give vaccine to wounded military soldiers who are dying or orphans who are dying? And if you chose the soldiers, you got dark side points. And it was <laughs> as the Republic. And it was like, really? I don't know. Just harder. Yeah, do they really have to be dying kids? Like, <laughs> how, 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 kids how white and black are we going to get here? It's like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's video games they uh they they do good and evil and choices you very well all the time it's it's perfect it's, it's good that we have somebody that's taking it more seriously <laughs> um so so what was it like kind of designing those th- those different kind of diametrically opposed options in the game obviously you know you you were able to draw from kind of your your friends and and larp writing and and kind of deciding how to do those but how do you figure out you know what all the consequences are going to be for everything and kind of how everything ties back together and doesn't just make a, a jumbled mess sure um well so one thing that made it easy was that uh tecmo as a setting has a a very interesting religion where you know, morality is determined by sort of non-hypocritically following the precepts of your god. And that's the morality from the point of view of someone who may not believe with your god or still glad that you're serving them, you know, honestly. And so I introduced a variety of gods in the game that were very different. And often I could align the choices more or less with those philosophies but in a way where because those philosophies are very extreme, most people playing the game who aren't really aware of the extent of them are probably going to walk sort of a, a more human path and then deal with the consequences, if there are any, of deviating sort of from like, you know, perfect nobility of purpose. So that, that helped me sort of frame the scope of things. But I think 
the way I got everything back together was to make each episode about a thing, right? So mm. it would be about an an issue. So uh, early on, there's a um, uh, there's a chapter where your significant other has like accrued massive gambling debts and wants help dealing with this. Um, and you know the chapter's about that issue, so you can do whatever you want about that issue. But then the issue is sort of resolved, and you move forward into sort of the next challenge or the next chapter in your life. And so that's what I did. Push, as it were. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think the key is if you make each thing about a separate issue, then people can do whatever they want with that issue. Whereas if... Sure. Okay. Yeah. And most importantly, that those individual issues are not, you know, <laughs> they may be vaguely life-threatening, but they're not world-ending and they're not situ- issues that will actually result in your character's death. So that regardless, sort of regardless of how the issue is resolved, everybody gets to move on to the next bush. Right. Okay. You're you're not blowing up a town with your decision, in other words. Well, you could blow up a town or you as could long as, okay. you know, like, then maybe the next... I mean, this is the beauty of uh, variables and computers compared to when you're writing an adventure novel on paper, right? You could blow up a town, and then if you do, the next chapter ends up being set in the next town over. Hmm. And sure. it just, you know, whenever something that's relevant to the scenery of the town or the nature of the town comes up, you sub in a different variable and you write some different text. Okay, um, sure, yeah. And that's one of the things that gives the choices that meaning, right? That they don't keep branching, but they have effects that continue forward in sort of mm-hmm. subtle ways in what comes after. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah, I know that's, that. I know for me, it, that always seems one of the frustrating things with, um, a lot of games where you make choices and you know, something else happens in the game that kind of negates your your choice one way or the other. So even though you made that choice and you've you got the good or the light points of it, it, you know something stops it from affecting the game world too much so that it doesn't drastically change the rest of the way that you you know play the game or something. And that that can yeah. always be kind of a frustrating thing. I know so what you're that's... talking about. Those can be like incredibly tempting to write as an author because they're really simple. And then, sure. But then, you know that every player knows exactly what's going on, right? Like people have a really good <laughs> eye for spotting when their decisions are meaningless. You know. Right. Yep. 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 Indeed. Well, Brian, do you have any more questions about uh, Choice of the Pedal Throne? Uh, one more. All right. How how was the coding process? For somebody that kind of came at this as a little bit of a, as you said, a freelance writer, um, how how hard was it to learn kind of how to, how to code in that system to get it to do what you wanted? You know, it it wasn't that hard. The, the basic structure requires you to know maybe, I would say, 10 commands. And there's maybe another 20 really useful commands, and they're all explained on a web page that I would just keep open in my browser. I remember when I was pretty early into the game, uh, I had been uh, writing this section, and there was sort of a lot of redundant sentences in it, you know, where, like, I would just retype huge sections. And um, 
Dan, who's uh, one of the Tracer Games guy and who's actually, you know, a programmer by trade, took it and was like, here, let me show you something and condensed it down to something that would display the same amount on the screen, but like maybe used a third <laughs> as many words written. And that was a really cool lesson because I could read over what he did and be like, oh, I get it. But even mm -hmm. without that sort of thing, in terms of what the the person playing the game sees, you know, your code doesn't have to be that elegant to do 90% of what you want to do. Uh, I actually, learning Python would be really good for my job because I could automate statistical tasks. And after um, writing my game in TraceScript, I got all enthused about coding <laughs> and started learning Python. Because <laughs> I was, it, it's so relaxing in a science lab, if you make a mistake, you've ruined like $2,000 worth of stuff and you just have to throw the last two days in a bin and start over tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And when you're programming and you make a mistake, you can be like, oh, I need to go delete that thing. <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> All right, let's flip that over. It's the, the plus side of being able to write on a computer instead of, you know, constantly just editing what you wrote over and over again. When you yeah. do make a mistake, it's just like, boop gone yay so uh the simple the short version is i find it very easy and uh i would very much encourage anyone who's interested in writing something like this to not worry about the coding or not think of the coding as a barrier to entry excellent i agree wholeheartedly <laughs> <laughs> all of you out there listening to this go write a game and try script and send it to us to publish <laughs> awesome well brian uh take it away with the uh the end game all right so uh, uh we like to end our interviews with a little bit of a questionnaire um it it is not blatantly taken from the inside the actor's studio mostly as jonathan not, not implied blatantly. earlier it's not blatantly. Uh, however you know it, it was inspired by such but uh skipping over that um you know uh, feel free both of you to answer um, it's it's absolutely uh, about you. There are no right or wrong answers. Um, there are no judges except for us. Um, so, you know, just be honest. And uh, starting off with question number one, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Jason, why don't you go first for all of these so I have more time to think of my answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the sound of the bus going over Jason. <laughs> right. <laughs> Can I not choose me? I mean, I, I like to play, you know, my avatar. Uh, I don't like Mass Effect. I haven't played Mass Effect, to be perfectly honest. Um, so when you talk about protagonists and the sorts of, of video games that I play, uh, they're they're me. You know, whether it's Civilization or uh, or a choice of game or you know City Skylines or something like that. The the ones where there's a where there's a defined protagonist. Um, are not the games that I end up that I find myself drawn to. You know, if I'm going to tell a story, if I'm going to get involved in a story, um, I'm either going to read a book, or I want I want to be the center of the story. When you do get to be the center of the story, do you do you find that it's that it's you that's the center, or is it um, kind of like uh, like a, almost like a heightened you that's the center? Like you play, do you play yourself up to a degree? Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely sort of an you know an alter ego uh, that I've developed that uh, is you know has a certain you know having done a lot of LARPing in the past and 
tabletop role playing and that sort of thing. There's a certain alter ego that I have developed over time. Uh, that so, for example, there in fact are still people that address me as Davin because that was uh, that alter ego for many years, and so they'll see me in person and they'll be like, "Hey, Davin," and I'll be like, "Ah." Um, and so, for example, <laughs> whenever I create a character for whatever, whether it was World of Warcraft or Skyrim or something along those lines, mm-hmm. um, that's the that's the name. And it's got a certain look. Uh, even Tropico, you know, it's always Dalvin. Uh, and there are variations on the last name. And th- so there's a certain, you know, that's my – if there's a favorite protagonist, it's it's him, that alter ego of me. Uh, I that I will accept. Me, me is a hard, me is a hard sell, but Davin I can buy. Oh, uh, Danielle, <laughs> your yeah. Turn. Uh, so my favorite protagonist in a video game uh-huh. is going to be Femshep from mm. Mass Effect. I really Excellent. was in love with my Femshep. Good choice. It's the proper shepherd. Excellent. It is, and <laughs> it's great because they basically took the actions they'd coded and the animations they'd coded for a guy and put it on a woman. And so instead of making a girly woman, they just made, you know, a female soldier. And I think mm-hmm. that's what resonated so much with people. Totally. And Jennifer Hale's voice was just perfect. Oh, yes, and Jennifer Hale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Indeed. Like Commander Shepard all the way. Um, flipping the coin, uh, question number two, who's your favorite video game antagonist? Okay, I'll answer first this time because I know this one. Okay. Uh, Gladys. It has to be Gladys. Gladys, yes. Nice. She is is fantastic. I actually just bought a companion cube apron for baking (laughs) from Think Geek, (laughs) um, which is an amazing product. (laughs) The apron or the companion cube? Both, but the apron in particular, right, with the cake tie-in, and it's so pretty with, like, the little heart and the companion cube design on the front of it. It just works really well. Who is Gladys? Gladys? Gladys is the evil AI of uh, of Portal. Ah, okay. Portal 2. She's basically a mad scientist who sarcastically comments on all of your failures while you're running through a puzzle game. Yep. In which you cannot talk. <laughs> She's a good one. Yep. Jason, your favorite, your favorite bad guy? Or girl? Uh, you or know... I've played a lot of Civilization over the years, and there is there are a certain leader that you've come to dread? You know, <laughs> C- Catherine the Great is uh, a hell of an antagonist. <laughs> uh, I was hoping it was going to be her or Gandhi. <laughs> I, I think we've actually gotten Gandhi before, so I, Catherine the Great's good choice. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't played a lot of Civ. I wouldn't. Th- I wouldn't have thought people would like develop personal animosity for the other rulers that's awesome well you know when whenever you see that that particular color uh on the map and you're like and you haven't even encountered them yet but you're like oh no they're in the game (laughs) actually you know what even more (laughs) these days since the expansions um haley selassie and the reason why because he's the ethiopian right and haley selassie's has really buff um, he's really aggressive with his religion and I like to spread my religion to all of the cities in, you know, 
everywhere on the continent, and he always out-religions me. And I don't want to get fights. I want to have like a nice, peaceful, cultural victory. But when he starts converting all my cities and converting the cities of the of third nation, third party nations, I'm like, no, must destroy you. He's he your own personal crusade. Haley <laughs> Selassie, his special advantage is is that whenever your empire is smaller, bigger than his, he gets combat bonuses. Oh wow! So the more you feed on him, the stronger he gets. Uh, <laughs> it's like ah so there you go at least nice. that's my antagonist choice that that will absolutely work um question number three um what's a what's a, a current trend in gaming that you with that you think should should continue to uh to kind of grow or get better interaction like a, and, a, and indie games generally we uh, we need more of them, you know, more uh, in in this space. I think there's a lot of room. There's a lot of space for new stories and new platforms and new, you know, crossovers between theater and, and games and games and television and games and, and uh, just the world at large, the gamification of all these things that we do in our daily lives. And I think that uh, there's a lot of room for innovation. And it's it's a really exciting time to be involved in making games. So, uh, I'm totally going to second the gamification of everything part. Um, but I'll, I'll do something a little more boring and mechanistic. I got an iPad for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I've been amazed by some of the stuff people have done using iPad controls. Like for decades, right, you play games and you sort of have console controls or um, computer controls and it's it's all sort of push buttons move a mouse or a joystick and like games like Monument Valley do really really interesting things with your you know the ability to use touch screens and I just started replaying uh, KOTOR on a touch screen and it was really fun so I hope more games start uh, moving to the iPad realm and it seems like a very interesting and intuitive way to interact with scenery. Very cool. Um, flipping that coin, um, what is something you wish would just go away? Either a trope or a trend, just something gaming where it just, it, we don't need any more of that. Rape jokes? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh my god, I'm going to have a hard time with this. I'm sort of a not critical person Super <laughs> um, I'm going to admit I well see here's the problem I have a really hard time wanting something to go away because I'm very aware that I have sort of unique tastes and there are things I don't like and would not play but I sort of feel like the hobby of gaming is big enough for everyone to find the thing they want so I guess the thing I'd like to go away is for gaming to be all about really huge titles that feel a need to like appeal to everyone. So some of those are good, but I think there's a, a way to diversify and make, you know, maybe more games that resonate more strongly with a smaller subset of the hobby instead of just trying to, you know, hit the same demographic 
over and over and then maybe hit it poorly because you're actually trying to hit every demographic, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, next question. You guys are kind of, you know, uh, living out at least the game dream. Jason, you're the magical COO of a, of a, of a games company, as it were. Um, Danielle, you are a freelance writer and you wrote your own game. Um, are, is there any other profession you would like to try, be it astronaut or or you know fireman, any anything out there that you'd love to to give a give a shot to? President of of the United States or like sure. uh, like a like a bridge club? Oh no! I, I, <laughs> well, really, it's not even president, just king. You know, give me give me unlimited king. power. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not like anybody appointed me uh, COO. I just kind of was like, "Hey guys, I'm a COO," and they kind of said, "Okay." <laughs> just walked in, and started introducing yourself like that, and suddenly you've got a card that says it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I told you, I started the company a lot, you know, a year after they actually started it. So I just kind of came in and was like, "Yo, guys, come on, come on, you need a COO." Yeah, I'm that guy. Yeah, so you know, make me king, and then then we'll, I'll fix a lot of things. It'll be great. So, all right, <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> I think it would be fun to do some sort of hang gliding para rescue job, like a low tech the Falcon. <laughs> <laughs> Barring that, which will probably never happen. Uh, I'd love to try working in a bakery sometime. I bake so much at home, and I don't really have a good sense of what it's like to do it professionally. I think I'd hate having to wake up early, though, so I'm going to stick with hang gliding. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Low-tech falcon king. All right. Uh, <laughs> second, second to the penultimate question, as it were. Um, this one, uh, this one's... I'm trying out different approaches to this one. I had an approach... Um, that dealt with uh, the ending of uh, uh, Escape from L.A. And I, I found that that wasn't really going over so well because most people hadn't seen that. Um, so I'm trying one now that has to deal with, uh, with the GoldenEye satellite from the, the GoldenEye James Bond movie, uh, which is basically a satellite um, up in space that um, sends out an EMP pulse uh, that you know will blow up equipment... Um, knock out electricity in, in, a, in a small kind of square block area. Um, you guys get a, a memo or a note, because nobody really gets memos anymore. I mean, who does that? Um, you guys get a note uh, that says that that's, that's going to happen over your area tomorrow. Um, you have a chance to play any game you want tonight. What would it be? So it's like my last chance. Like it's out for a little it's while. Like, Nobody's going to get hurt. It's not anything you really have to go out of your way to plan for. You, you um, don't have to feel guilty about yeah. playing a video game tonight. Oh my god. Okay, so it would. I'd have to play two. I'd have to play Kotor for a while because I'm like almost done with my Dantooine quest on my iPad. Hmm. And then uh, my friend got me addicted two days ago to this like. 2048 game where you're just trying to match up blocks in a square. Have either of you guys played this? Yes, that and and threes. Um, so since I may have an actual clinical addiction to that, I probably <laughs> need to get my fix before the power went out. Excellent. Well, luckily, once the power goes out, you'll be able to start collecting your chips. It, it'll so be cold turkey, the, right? Yeah, 30, 60 <laughs> nope. days. Once you're past that point, it should be fine. 
Um, I would have to uh, mostly for amusement value. I'm going to say Space Team, and that uh, my girlfriend is not a gamer, but I have gotten her into Space Team, and in fact, I've gotten her sister into Space Team. And so, whenever her sister's you know ten, fifteen years younger than her, so we have her over to for dinner, kind of periodically, regularly, I should say. And so the way that I uh, uh, bond with my girlfriend's little sister is by playing Space Team with her. So we sit around and play Space Team. And so if I was, if we were going to lose all games for a while, I would make sure to uh, make dinner and have them over so that we could play some Space Team and get it out of our systems. Um, <laughs> that, nice. that game is an excellent way for you and four friends to confuse a whole party. <laughs> you know they've added a massive version uh, that can play up to eight people and we I was actually oh. hit on a weekend in the Poconos in Pennsylvania and we had eight people but we could only get seven into the waiting room so we played a seven person game of space team or at least they did I was the odd man out there must be an interesting sociological study on how big space team could get before it just becomes impossible to pay attention to everyone in the game or suddenly it's the Enterprise. <laughs> seven, like... seven people was uh, pretty much on the edge, I have to say, uh, with everybody. Because they, there's, they, it, I don't think they increased the time. They just sort of slowed – they um, lowered the number of, of, success, of things right that you had to do. And they made less dials on your page. But they didn't make it any slower or so on and so forth. So it was it was pretty nuts at seven. I think they only got to round four or five. Okay. Space team. Nice. Uh, final question. Um, at the end of our lives, when we come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom and Toad is there to greet us with the book of our deeds, um, what would you like him to say to you before he lets you in? About my life? Sure. I'd like to know that I lived my life without without victimizing anyone and with leaving, like, legitimately leaving a net positive good on the people around me. Is that corny? Not at all. No. The whole question itself is kind of corny, so your answer was actually very, <laughs> very right, right along with it. I appreciate that. So... You, I don't know if you are aware, but I've written two games for Choice of Games, and they're both about vampires. Uh, in fact, it's a series. It's the first two in volumes in an ongoing series. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be a vampire, and when I get to the Mushroom Kingdom, I'm just going to drink his mushroom blood. <laughs> yes. All right. Wait, so so what, what effect... Let, We've got a different question then. What effect do you think mushroom blood Super will have? Of course. Okay, su- okay. And, you know, and the ability to jump even higher. <laughs> wouldn't, wait, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it give you... It could give you regeneration too, right? Well, even better. Depending on which type of mushroom. <laughs> hey, look, as long as it gives me hallucinations, I mean... Look, look. <laughs> so you're going to be like a super strong tripping vampire wandering around heaven. Do you remember when I used to run the vampire LARP in, in San Francisco? So you need to, Jason, Choice of Games' new quest is to branch out into visual media and get someone to make that platformer. Right. <laughs> I think that's an excellent idea. 
Well, that that was the last question. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I don't have any prizes for anybody, but um, you know, uh, I do appreciate all the honest answers. Don't worry, uh, Jonathan. Take us off. After we get off the podcast, you'll find me in your bedroom drinking your blood. That's, so, yeah, right. That's my right. Yeah. Nightmare huddled over me. Yeah, not creepy at all. Not Brian. At all. Brian, you'll have nightmares about die. I'll have nightmares. That's right. Yeah, about that's vampires right. I'll, just, in I'll my stick room. with a thirty-four sided dice. That's right. <laughs> All right, well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the Darkcast tonight. Uh, if you could just send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more information about uh, the choice of the pedal throne. Uh, yeah. You go first, Jason. Oh, it, it, you can find it on pretty much any platform. Uh, iTunes, uh, App Store, you can find it on Steam, you can find it on our website, choiceofgames.com, you can find it on the Google Play Store, the Chrome Web Store, or the Amazon App Store for Android. Um, and then if you want to uh, uh, engage with it on another level, I'm starting to run a real-time choose-your-own-adventure on Twitter at Pedal Throne as a way to promote the game, so... That could be fun or a train wreck, but either way, we'll probably be entertaining. <laughs> it's the next Twitch plays Pokemon. It, it, we'll just walk around in circles for hours. I look forward to that. That that joke is completely lost on me. So I got gonna, it. That, Twitch that, is that where is you watch fantastic. people game, right? So That's watching right. someone play Pokemon would be basically what it was boring. is. Twitch Plays Pokemon was somebody had programmed um, uh, a game of Pokemon to respond to the Twitch chat. So over the period of like, I want to say it was like seven days, this poor Pokemon trainer um, walked back and forth and ended up actually beating the game, but not without a tremendous amount of difficulty. Fantastic. Yeah, so like that, but on Twitter. So it's, <laughs> exactly, yep. So I'm, yeah, I'm right there for it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much, and uh, congratulations on the uh, the recent release of the game, and good luck as you hopefully get to you know continue writing games and uh, you know more games coming out from, from Course of Games. Good luck with all that. Thank you very much. Thank you.